Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're studying chapter 22 in this book titled Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This chapter is titled Mental Health, A Modern Day Delusion. This is where you start to understand how many of the disorders or illnesses that people are describing in Western medicine as related to the brain can actually be described through the teachings of the Buddha through the symptoms that you experience can be related directly to pollutions in the mind that the Buddha discovered. And then he provides the solutions to how to uproot those from the mind. So then by understanding the problem and the solution, you can actually rid yourself of any type of symptoms or difficulties or anguish related to things like ADHD, ADD, anorexia, bulimia, any kind of anxiety or panic disorders, bipolar, schizophrenia, all these and others can be explained through the teachings of the Buddha. And then by applying the solutions and the remedies, you can actually eradicate the difficulties from the mind that are causing these symptoms to arise. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you some teachings to be able to help you see what the real problem is in the mind. And then we're going to talk about mental health. So for some of you guys, what I have to share with you is going to be a refresher for you. But for others who have never learned with me before or learned this particular topic, this will be brand new for you to be able to help you learn. I'm going to explain to you the three universal truths and the four noble truths as a way to helping you understand the problem in the unenlightened mind, the cause of the problem, the elimination, and the path forward. And then when you understand that, then we can start talking about mental health issues in more detail so that you can see whether it's you or the people that are around you that are struggling with certain symptoms or anguish that is now being labeled as mental illness, you can actually see how the Buddha describes these things in his teachings and it relates directly to his teachings in his solutions will actually remedy the symptoms of these issues. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining for the first time or you're joining regularly, I'm going to walk you through some important teachings here to help you to understand the problems in the unenlightened mind and then how to actually solve those problems. As we go in our class today, you're welcome to ask any and all questions that you like. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly that you'd like. So I'm going to help you to understand what's called the three universal truths and the four noble truths to help you get started in understanding what the problem is in the unenlightened mind, the cause of that problem, the elimination and the path forward. And then we're going to move into talking about mental health, specifically the mental health 
issues that one might be diagnosed with so that you can start seeing the connection and correlation to the same problems that the Buddha discovered. But as you're getting started on this journey, if you haven't learned with me before, it's important that you understand to not believe any of the teachings. What I'm sharing with you today, you should never believe what I'm teaching you. You need to learn it, investigate it, examine it. You need to be able to reflect on it, to independently verify it, and practice it. This is how you get to wisdom. You can't get to this in light and mental state where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently through belief. You can't just believe your way to enlightenment. The teachings of the Buddha aren't about believing a bunch of things and then hoping something good happens when you die. Instead, he's helping you to learn the natural laws of existence around you. And then you need to reflect on that to independently verify that and then you need to practice it. When you have a lack of wisdom, you'll tend to make unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results. And when you have wisdom, you'll naturally make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. But when you lack wisdom of these natural laws that the Buddha described, you'll struggle and have difficulties in the world. Some of the struggles that you experience are things like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, loneliness, boredom, shyness, resentment, jealousy. All of these and others are discontent feelings that the mind is struggling with due to various conditions in the mind. Basically, it comes down to a lack of wisdom that the mind hasn't been trained. It doesn't understand the world around it. So it's a big challenge to exist in a world that you don't understand. The teachings of the Buddha, they're not explaining the way the world should be, and then if everybody follows those rules or commandments, the world will become peaceful. He's explaining the way the world is, and that's why I refer to his teachings as the natural laws of existence. And by awakening to the wisdom of these natural laws, that's where your mind can then function with ease, with this peace and joy that is the permanent mental state of enlightenment. The same thing needed to occur when you were growing up related to the natural law of gravity. When you first were born, you really struggled with this natural law. And as you experienced the various effects of this natural law, you struggled and had difficulties. We all did. We fell down, we hit our head, we busted our elbows, our knees, we broke toys. We made all these unwise decisions related to the natural law of gravity. But slowly but surely, we saw the truth for ourselves, and we awoke to the wisdom of this natural law, and we started making wiser decisions that led to wholesome results in our life. We started tying our shoes tighter. We started looking at the surface of the sidewalk when we walked down the street. We started paying much more attention to what we were doing. We became very deliberate. If there were certain things that were important and special to us, we might have put them in a place where they wouldn't get easily knocked over and broken. So as we started getting wisdom of this natural law of gravity, we started naturally making wiser decisions that produced wholesome results. And now we're at a point where we can ride bicycles, we can ride motorcycles or motorbikes, we can climb ladders, we can get on airplanes and travel all over the world because we understand the natural law of gravity. But when we lacked wisdom of that natural law, we struggled and had difficulties. And the same thing is occurring with the natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught. The mind in the unenlightened state is struggling and having difficulties because it lacks wisdom of this natural law. And the mind will continue to do that as long as you lack wisdom of these natural laws. So what I'm going to share with you is going to start out with the three universal truths and the four noble truths. And when you're learning this, you need to be able to learn it, 
to reflect on it, to independently verify it and practice it. You don't believe what a teacher is sharing with you. No matter what I share with you in classes or personal guidance, no matter what I share with you in books or any other avenue of me teaching, don't ever believe anything that I share because it's not going to help you to cultivate wisdom. With belief, you don't know what's true or false. You're just believing it because somebody convinced you to believe it. I'm not here to convince you or force you to do anything. I don't have any expectations of you. My interest is for you to cultivate wisdom so that then you can see the truth for yourself about these natural laws. And then with that wisdom, you'll make wiser and wiser decisions in the world that lead to wholesome results. So I'm going to share with you these teachings and walk you through the learning part of this. And then I'm going to help you to understand how to reflect on it. Then I'm going to help you to understand how to practice these teachings. And that's where you'll see the real results. So let me show you what I mean here. This first universal truth of the universal truth of impermanence. This is helping you to understand that things are constantly changing, that there's something called conditioned objects that arise, they change, and then they fade away. This is a conditioned object and it's constantly changing. All the things around you that you can see, that you can hear, that you smell, that are certain flavors that you taste on your tongue, certain physical objects that come in contact with the body, or certain thoughts that go through your mind. All these things are impermanent. They arise, they change, and they fade away because they're conditioned objects. This is what impermanence is. It's the universal truth of impermanence explaining this constant change, that there isn't this steady fixed state. There is something called a unconditioned object. An unconditioned object doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. Enlightenment itself, by the time you get to enlightenment, it's permanent. It's a permanent mental state. The natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught during his lifetime, they don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. This is why his teachings during his lifetime are just as applicable today as they were 2,500 years ago because these natural laws haven't changed. And he's describing these natural laws for you so that you can understand what these natural laws are and you can understand the world around you because he's describing the way the world is, not the way the world should be. So understanding this first universal truth that it's describing constant change. Now, this is the learning part. What you should do is start moving into reflection where you try to independently verify what I'm sharing with you to determine if it's true. Because if this is a universal truth, you will see that it's true. No matter where you are in the world, you will see that this impermanence is affecting everything around you. So I suggest you start with things that you're very familiar with, like this physical body. You're very familiar with this. You can reflect on this and ask yourself, is this body permanent or is it impermanent? If this body is permanent, then that means it stays the same your entire life and it never changes. If it's impermanent, then that means that the body is going through constant change and it's constantly changing. So ask yourself, is this body permanent or impermanent? What you've probably come back with is that this body is impermanent. It's constantly changing. We have our hair that's growing. We have our skin complexion is changing. We had teeth that grew in, then they fell out, then they grew in again, and then now they get cavities. This is constant change. You might experience a mole or a pimple or a wrinkle in the skin. 
your fingernails are growing and then you're cutting them and they're growing again. This is constant change. This physical body is constantly changing. Then ask yourself about your relationships. Are your relationships permanent or impermanent? Have you had exactly the same people in your life your entire life, meaning your relationships are permanent? Or have people been coming and going in and out of your life throughout your life, meaning your relationships are impermanent? So what would you say? Are your relationships permanent or impermanent? What you've probably come back with is that your relationships are impermanent. They're constantly changing. Now ask yourself, is your bank account permanent or impermanent? Does your bank account stay exactly the same balance all the time? Or is it going up and down and up and down? Or is it going up and up and up and up? Or is it going down and down and down and down? Ask yourself, is your bank account permanent or impermanent? Well, of course, it's impermanent. And ask yourself about the weather. Is the weather permanent or impermanent? Is it exactly the same weather every day, meaning there's permanence in the weather? Or are things constantly changing, meaning the weather is impermanent? So all these things that we're talking about that you're reflecting on, you're coming back with saying that, yes, they are impermanent. You can look around the world around you and you can see that all these various things around you are impermanent. And if you can't see that for yourself through reflection, you're going to need to go around and do this for yourself is look as you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a crack in the sidewalk. That's impermanence. As the shape and the color and the texture of the sidewalk is changing, that's impermanence. Maybe the height of the sidewalk is changing. That's impermanence. When you look at a fence and you see the paint is fading, that is impermanent. There's all these different things that are going on around you that are all impermanent. And these are building blocks to help you understand what I'm going to teach you next. So you're going to need to spend time to soak this in and be sure you can deeply see that everything around you is impermanent. Now there's the second universal truth, which is called discontentedness. Some people translate this as suffering. You'll see different translations of the teachings of the Buddha. The original teachings of the Buddha are in the Pali Canon, which is the Pali language. And some people translate the word that is used in the Pali Canon over to suffering. I don't use that word and I'll explain to you why here in a moment. But first, let me just explain to you what this universal truth is. During the lifetime of the Buddha and what was actually documented and given to us ultimately is this word dukkha is being used in the Pali Canon. This is being translated as discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. These are conditioned feelings that the unenlightened mind is experiencing. There's pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. This is how the Buddha describes dukkha, that the unenlightened mind is going to experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. The pleasant feelings are things like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria. These are very pleasant for you to experience. Then there's painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, and others. These are very painful for the mind to experience. Then there's neither painful nor pleasant. I put boredom and loneliness here, but some people say that's quite painful for them. So you could put that in the painful category if you like. But shyness is a really good example of neither painful nor pleasant. That the unenlightened mind is experiencing this shyness, which is a conditioned feeling, but it's not painful, it's not pleasant, it's neither painful nor pleasant. Or if you were on public transportation and somebody came and sat really, really close to you and your body was touching their body, it's not 
painful, it's not pleasant, it's neither painful nor pleasant. This is what this particular feeling is. It's neither painful nor pleasant. The mind is either discontent or discontented or experiencing discontentedness. The mind is dissatisfied when it's experiencing these neither painful nor pleasant feelings. So here, these are the three feelings that the Buddha is describing that the unenlightened mind is experiencing. And remember, these are conditioned feelings that based on some condition, the mind forms a feeling. So if it's sunny outside, you might get happy. And that's a conditioned feeling. Based on the condition of the sun, you will experience happiness. But now that happiness is impermanent because it arises, it changes, and it fades away. Because you based your feeling on some condition like the sun, when that condition changes and now it's raining, now you might be sad or frustrated or irritated because you've formed your inner feeling based on some condition. So this is what the unenlightened mind is experiencing. It's going up and down and up and down and up and down at different times with some period of peacefulness and other things here and there. But essentially the unenlightened mind is going up and down and up and down at different times. The enlightened mind is beyond this. It doesn't experience conditioned feelings. It experiences unconditioned mental qualities where the mind is just always peaceful and always joyful. So in that situation where an unenlightened mind sees it's sunny outside, they get happy. And then when the rain comes, an individual may get frustrated or irritated or annoyed. An enlightened being, when they wake up in the morning, they're already happy. They're already joyful because they have unconditioned happiness or unconditioned joy where there doesn't need to be any conditions met in order for there to be happiness. And now when they see that it's sunny outside, all right, great, it's sunny outside. Let's go outside and have some fun. Let's go spend time going hiking or biking or some other activity. And then when they go take a shower and they come out and they see that it's raining outside, it's like, all right, well, it's raining, so maybe I'll go to the mall. Maybe I'll invite my friends over for some dinner. I'll make them some food. Maybe I'll stay home and read a book. An unenlightened mind is going to get frustrated and irritated there. But an enlightened mind can maintain its peacefulness and its joy because it hasn't based its inner feelings on the sun. So therefore, when the sun changes to rain, the enlightened mind can maintain its joy and its peace. So here, this universal truth, the Buddha is explaining to you that the unenlightened mind is going to experience these conditioned feelings of pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant. And you can independently verify this for yourself by looking at your direct experience over life, that you know your mind is unenlightened at this point. So do you experience these types of feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. Is there any feeling that you experience that doesn't fit into one of these three categories? So that's how you independently verify this is look at your own mind and determine if this is explaining what you experience, the pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant. Now, as I mentioned, some people refer to this as suffering. I don't use that word because the painful feelings can be described as suffering. But when you're getting happy or excited or elated, you wouldn't describe that as suffering. Or that person you don't know that sits next to you in public transportation, when your mind is experiencing that displeasure or that dissatisfaction, you probably wouldn't say you were suffering based on that person sitting next to you. So if we use the word suffering, it only explains the painful feelings, which is 33% of what the Buddha is teaching here. That means you're missing 66% of his teachings. And if you're missing 66% of a teacher's teachings, you wouldn't be able to actually understand the teachings well enough to get to the actual results of the enlightened mind.
So even though other people use the word suffering, I encourage you to use the word discontent, discontented, and discontentedness. This is a much better representation that represents the full spectrum of feelings. That when you're excited or elated, your mind's discontent, it's shaken up. Or when you're experiencing sadness or frustration, your mind is shaken up, it's discontent. And when you're experiencing shyness, your mind's discontent. It, it represents all three feelings. Then there's the universal truth of non-self. This is actually helping you to eradicate one of the pollutions that the Buddha discovered in the mind. There's 10 individual pollutions that the Buddha discovered. It's referred to as the 10 fetters. What a fetter is, is during ancient times, when there was a prisoner, they would put a shackle around their ankle with a chain and a ball. And this is what would keep them trapped as a prisoner in a particular area. Well, these 10 fetters or these 10 pollutions, they're keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state. These are called taints or defilements, where the Buddha discovered these 10 individual pollutions, and then his teachings are there to help you uproot them out of the mind so that you can experience the peace and joy of the enlightened mind. The enlightened mind will function more optimally because this pollution has been eradicated. So the very first pollution on the list of the 10 fetters is something called personal existence view. The universal truth of non-self is the solution to this. But let me first explain to you what personal existence view is. There's this pollution in the mind or this confusion or this misunderstanding or this misperception where the unenlightened mind thinks that this body or this mind is you. And now the mind clings to this body wanting to be perceived in the world a certain way, a certain self-image that you want to be perceived as in the world or a certain self-identity in the mind. So for example, if your mind is clinging to this body, having personal existence view, then when you spill sauce, like spaghetti sauce or pizza sauce or chocolate ice cream or something on your clothes in a social situation, you'll be embarrassed. Or if you see a mole or a pimple or a wrinkle or a gray hair, or you notice that you're losing your hair, or you're getting a little bit of fat here or there, you'll see that in the mirror or you'll notice that and now you'll be shaken up by that. Or if somebody gives you a compliment about how you look and how you appear, you'll get these pleasant feelings because they're talking about the appearance of the body. But then if somebody says something degrading or disparaging about this physical body in your self-image, you'll get sad or frustrated or angry or irritated. This is because the mind's clinging to this body, this self-image, thinking that this is who you are. And then there's something called self-identity in the mind, where the mind's clinging to a certain culture, an ethnicity, a sexual orientation, a nationality, maybe your job or occupation, that the mind is clinging to this, thinking that this is who you are. Like, I am Chinese, or I am American, or I am Brazilian, or I am Japanese, or I am Mexican, or I am Canadian, or I am a Brit, I'm an Aussie this I am, I am, I am, or I am a construction worker, or I am an electrician, or I am a taxi driver, or I am kind, or I am polite, or I am a boyfriend, I am a girlfriend, I am a husband, I am a wife. So now, if you're in a relationship and you can identify with that role of I am a boyfriend, I am a girlfriend, now you feel whole. But then when you 
eliminate the relationship when the relationship's over. You might feel like you want to hurry up and get right back into another relationship because you feel like a part of you is missing. You don't feel whole anymore. You feel like something's missing. So now you might feel like you want to hurry up and get right back into another relationship because your identity is not intact and you're trying to get back to some level of comfort. Or if you've ever had a job, a certain occupation, and you've identified with this is who you are as a person, like maybe I am a police officer, or I am a lawyer, or I am a doctor. And now when you're no longer doing that job anymore, now you might struggle. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you got laid off. Maybe you got fired. Maybe you retired. And now your identity isn't intact anymore. And you feel like a part of you is missing and you don't feel whole anymore. Or say that you're in a public restaurant and two tables over, they're disparaging where you come from. They're talking negatively about your nationality. They're degrading Chinese people or Japanese people or Americans or some other nationality that your mind might be holding on to. And now when they're disparaging those people, you might get angry and frustrated because you identify with that's who you are as a person. And you need to understand that this is the personal existence view. This is the pollution of personal existence view where the mind's clinging to the body or the mind, the self image or this self-identity thinking that this is who you are and because you can't control what other people say or what other people do it's only a matter of time before somebody says something degrading and disparaging about this physical body or about some identity that you're clinging to in the mind and as long as you're clinging to this then you're opening yourself up to discontentedness so the buddha is giving you the solution where he says there is no self there is no you there he essentially is saying that this body nor this mind is you. It's not who you are. But the problem is that the mind has this misunderstanding and this confusion, thinking that this is who you are. Because we've been given this name at birth where, like for my example, I am David. Well, this mind no longer identifies in that way, but at birth I was given this label of David. And now there's a certain self-image or a certain self-identity that's wrapped around that. And now the mind goes out into the world and tries to be perceived in a certain way. So all throughout your life, you might have been adopting a certain self-image or a certain self-identity thinking that this is who you are. And the Buddha is sharing with you that this isn't who you are. There is a body and there is a mind and this has come together for this existence but this isn't you it's not who you are as a person so let's reflect on this now that we've done just a little bit of learning and keep in mind that not everybody understands the universal truth of non-self when they hear it the first time it takes some time oftentimes multiple conversations to understand it but let me help you to reflect on it so that you can see the truth that there is no self that this body nor this mind is you think about yourself and how you viewed yourself when you were a child when you were a teenager early adulthood and then now the character your personality how did you view yourself in all of those stages of life as a child as a teenager early adulthood and then now has it been constantly the same and you viewed yourself exactly the same through all that period or has your thoughts of your character and personality been constantly changing i'm pretty sure you'd say that it's been constantly changing right you viewed yourself differently this is how you can see there is no self. But let's use some other examples as well. 
If your arm was amputated and you only had one hand and one arm, are you less of a person? You can ask yourself that. Are you less of a person? Because you only have one hand and one arm now. When I talk about this in classes where students are there and I can look at their feedback and they can answer audibly, they will say, no, they're not less of a person. So the mind understands that this body is not you. It intellectually understands. Because when I ask this question, if you are amputated at the arm and you only have one hand and one arm, and I said, are you less of a person? If you thought that this body was you, you would say, yes, I am less of a person because I only have one hand and one arm. But what you're thinking about, I'm pretty sure, is that you're not less of a person. You just have less use of a hand and an arm. So intellectually, you understand that this body isn't you. But this is where the pollution of personal existence view gets in the way, where the mind is confused and has a misunderstanding and has this misperception. Because when you're in a situation where somebody says something complimentary about the body, you'll get pleasant feelings. Or when somebody says something negative or degrading about the body, you'll get painful feelings because the mind's confused in that situation. You can intellectually understand here in class, but when you're out in the world and you're interacting with people, that's where the mind gets confused and has the misunderstanding. And then here's a third way to independently verify it. I ask students, point to yourself, where are you? And oftentimes students will either point towards the chest or they will point towards the head. Well, if you're pointing towards the chest, look at what you're pointing to. If you're wearing a shirt, you're pointing to a shirt. That's what you're pointing to. So take off the shirt, well, not literally, but if you did take off the shirt and you held that up and I pointed to it and I said, is that who you are? Are you that shirt that you're wearing? Or is that who I am? Am I this shirt? Is that who I am? And the answer is no, I'm not this shirt. You're not that shirt. Okay, so let's throw away the shirt. We're not the shirt. So where are you? Where are you? Point. So someone might point again to the chest. Well, what are you pointing to? What are you literally pointing to? You're pointing to skin. So let's take off the skin and hold that up. Is that who you are? That skin right there that you have? Is that you, that skin? The answer is no, that skin's not you. So we throw that away. Okay, so what's left? We got bones, the rib cage. We've got organs and tissue. We've got fluids. What part of that is you? What bits and pieces of that is you? Well, when you dismantle this body, you can see that there is no you. There's no you there. But the mind's going to keep thinking that this is you because of that personal existence view and that pollution. And now when you're at a restaurant and two tables over, you hear people talking about your culture, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, your nationality, your job or occupation. If you're identifying with any of these things or they're talking about your self-image, either your self-image or your self-identity. Now you're going to be shaken up by that. And because you can't control what other people do, you can only control your own mind. You're going to be shaken up when you're in these kinds of situations. It would be wonderful if everyone was polite, kind, friendly, or respectful, but that would be permanence. You live in an impermanent world. So the Buddha is teaching you that there is no self. There is no self. This is the universal truth of non-self. So 
here, these are the three universal truths. And I introduce these to you, help you learn how to reflect on them so that they can be used as building blocks to help you understand the Four Noble Truths, what I'm gonna teach you next. But I'd like to pause here and see if there's anyone that has any questions related to the three universal truths. You can put this into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna move on to the next thing, which is another building block for the Four Noble Truths. This is craving, desire, attachment. This is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. These are words that we use in order to describe a certain aspect of the mind. This craving, desire, attachment, expectations or wants or grasping or holding. This is the mind longing, yearning, chasing after the objects of its affection, thinking the next new shiny object waiting around the corner is going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. So the mind chases and chases and chases after it. This is what a craving desire attachment is. So you can ask yourself and you can reflect on this to independently verify this in your own life. If you've ever been in the mall and you've been walking and you saw a pair of shoes or maybe a phone or a computer or a video game, a new pair of clothes, or maybe you really want to have a boyfriend or you really want to have a girlfriend. This is the mind longing, yearning, and chasing after something, thinking something external is gonna provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. The mind almost becomes obsessed with it, where the mind's longing, yearning, and chasing after something. Whereas if you saw that new pair of shoes in the window of the store, you might've been like, oh yes, 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 yes. I just gotta have those shoes. So this is craving, desire, attachment. And you should be able to independently reflect on this and see the truth for yourself that your mind is experiencing this. So now we'll talk about the Four Noble Truths before we talk about mental health so that you understand what the problem is in the unenlightened mind, the cause of that problem, the elimination, and the path forward. So the first Noble Truth is explaining the problem. Everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. This is those conditioned feelings of painful feelings, those conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, and then the neither painful nor pleasant. So the pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. These are conditioned feelings. This is the problem. The unenlightened mind is going up and down and up and down, up and down based on some condition. And in the enlightened state, you're beyond all of this. You're experiencing the unconditioned mental qualities of peace and joy. The second noble truth is explaining the cause. Discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So I'm gonna say that a couple of times and I'm gonna give you some examples as well. That discontentedness that's in the mind, those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, it's being caused by craving, desire, attachment because the mind wants things to be permanent when everything's impermanent. So it's that mental longing and strong eagerness, the chasing after the objects of your affection, that if you get what you want, then you get the pleasant feelings. But if you don't get what you want, you get the painful feelings. This is all due to the cravings, desires, attachments, the wants, the expectations, thinking that something external is gonna provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. So the mind chases and chases and chases. And again, if it gets what it wants, it gets those pleasant feelings. They're conditional. The happiness arises, it changes, and it fades away. 
the excitement. It arises, it changes, it fades away. And then if it doesn't get what it wants, it ends up experiencing the painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, and other discontent feelings. So here's some examples. If you've ever been in a relationship with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband or wife, when you guys first got together, everything was so great, right? There was you and this other person. They were going out with you to the movies, to dinner. Maybe you're having great conversations. Maybe you're having walks in the park. Maybe you're having intimate contact even with this person. And now when you guys were first together, everything was so wonderful, nothing but pleasant feelings. They're showing you all this affection. You really ate it up, right? Well, now over time, as things occurred in the relationship, the relationship ended for whatever reason. And now you're experiencing perhaps the sadness, the anger, the frustration, the loneliness, and other discontent feelings. This is the mind holding on, craving permanence, wanting this relationship to be permanent, when in reality, this relationship was always impermanent. But the unenlightened mind doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. The unenlightened mind doesn't understand the craving, desire, attachment is the cause of these discontent feelings. The unenlightened mind will blame other people for what it's experiencing. So, for example, with these relationships, say you have a grandmother or grandfather who dies, or a mom or dad or brother, sisters or friends who die. If you're grieving or you're sad at the funeral, you're not a bad person. You haven't done anything wrong. This is just the mind craving permanence, wanting grandma or grandpa or brothers or sisters or mom or dad to be permanent, when in reality they are impermanent. Because they were born, they had to die. The same thing happens at a wedding. If you've ever been to a wedding and you've got emotional and you've cried at a wedding, the mind's holding on to this person, wanting them to be permanent. And now this wedding ceremony is being confronted with this impermanence where they're now going off into the world and your mind being confronted with that, now the mind struggles because it doesn't understand impermanence. Or if you got a brand new car and now you got all these pleasant feelings when you got this brand new car and then you park it at a store, you go inside and you come out and you see a scratch on the car. Well, it's not the scratch that's causing the frustration. If you get frustrated or angry or irritated, it's not the scratch that's causing that. It's not even the person who scratched your car. That's not what's causing the mind to experience frustration or agitation. What's causing the mind to experience this frustration and agitation is the craving, the desire, the attachment, the longing, the yearning, the wanting this car to be permanent. And when the mind didn't get that, it struggled and it had difficulties. So you can independently verify what I'm sharing with you here in the second noble truth. Because what I'm sharing with you is that your mind is causing its own discontent feelings. So you can now verify this, that you can look at a recent time when you were angry or frustrated or irritated. You can even look at a situation when you were happy and so excited and elated. And you can see that your mind was having craving, desire, attachment. The mind was wanting something. And if it got what it wanted, it got those pleasant feelings. But if it didn't get what it wanted, it got angry or sad or frustrated or some other painful feeling. So at the time that you were experiencing that, whether it was today or yesterday or last week, you might have been looking for somebody to blame. This is what the unenlightened mind will typically do. You've probably been in fierce arguments and fierce fights where you were adamantly trying to convince the other person that they were doing something that was causing your mind to be angry. 
and they needed to change what they were doing because they were making you angry. You might have been fighting to death for some particular position that you were holding in terms of trying to convince this person that they are making you angry. But now, with these fresh eyes and this new wisdom, even though you've blamed other people in the past, perhaps, look at that same situation. What is it that your mind was wanting? It was craving. It was expecting. It was desiring. It was longing and yearning for that if you would have got it, you would have gotten happy or excited. You would have gotten those pleasant feelings. But because you didn't get what you wanted, your mind experienced the sadness or the anger, the frustration or irritation. You can look at this yourself and directly reflect, directly and independently verify that your mind's craving, desire, attachment is causing your own discontent feelings. And this is so key for your journey to enlightenment because as long as you keep believing that it's other people that are causing you to be angry and frustrated, you'll never solve your problem. You'll just continue to be stuck in this constant cycle of experiencing discontentedness over and over again. Because when the unenlightened mind misunderstands what the problem is and the cause of the problem, you will falsely attribute your painful feelings to something external. And you will typically push that person away or you will push the situation away. This is called aversion. And it doesn't solve the problem because when you push people away, you just become irritated or annoyed about something else. It's only a matter of time. That's how you know you didn't solve your problem. Because if you solved your problem, as soon as you pushed away that person or that situation, you wouldn't get angry or frustrated anymore. But when you push that person or situation away, it didn't solve the problem because you keep getting angry or frustrated because that's not the cause. That person or that situation isn't the cause. The cause is your craving, desire, attachment. When you misunderstand the cause of the problem, you may also choose to be bitter and harsh and hostile, resentful, having animosity. Now your intentions, your speech, and your actions become hostile towards others. And now people might choose to leave out of your life. Or the third thing you might do when you misunderstand the cause of the problem is you might put your expectations on people, trying to convince people to do things your way. And now in these situations, the number of people that you can spend time with becomes fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer. Because as your expectations grow and the more things that you want, it's only a matter of time before somebody does something you disagree with and you push them to the side or you become bitter and harsh and hostile with them, or you put your expectations on them and try to control them to do things your way. So as long as you don't understand what the problem is, which is the discontentedness, and you don't understand the cause of that problem is craving, desire, attachment, you'll just be stuck in this constant anger and frustration, and the number of people you spend time with becomes fewer and fewer and fewer. Because when you're bitter and harsh and hostile to people, they'll choose to leave out of your life. Or if you put your expectations on people and try to pressure them to do things your way, they'll choose to leave out of your life. And by you pushing people away with aversion, you can't live harmoniously with all beings. And this is all being caused from within your own mind due to the craving, desire, attachment, the longing, yearning. That's what's causing the sadness, the anger, the frustration, the irritation, and all these other discontent feelings. So you'll need to independently verify this and not believe what I'm sharing with you. Then the third noble truth is explaining to you the elimination of discontentedness as possible by eliminating cravings, desires, attachments. If you understand that the cause of discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment, then if you eliminate the cause, then you eliminate the effect, 
where if you eliminate the action, then you eliminate the result. So by eliminating the cravings, then you can eliminate the discontentedness. This is why you can get to enlightenment. You can get to the peace and joy because all you need to do is train your own mind. Whereas if you misunderstand what the cause of the problem is, you might be out there trying to convince everybody in the world to do things your way. But this is a real problem because there's 8 billion people in the world and you can't train 8 billion people to do things your way. You would need to have 8 billion books. You would need to have lots of television programs. You would need to have trainers all over the world. And you would need to do this constantly because there's new beings being born all the time. You would need to train the entire world to do things your way. And if everyone does things your way, you can be peaceful and joyful. Well, you could at least experience the pleasant feelings, the conditional happiness, right? So this is impractical. You're not going to be able to do this. So you can train just one mind. You can eliminate the burden of going around the world trying to train other people. And you can get to the point where you just train your own mind to eliminate the craving desire attachments. And the Buddha provides various teachings to be able to help you do that. And it's the fourth noble truth that is explaining that to you, that it, the path to eliminating discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. When you understand the Eightfold Path through the words of the Buddha, and you dial this in your life closer and closer, you eliminate your cravings, desires, attachments. Your mind will be liberated from these strong feelings. You'll feel the freedom and the joy of no longer having these pollutions in the mind. And it's the Eightfold Path, which is this core central teaching of the Buddha that explains that to you. So using the original words of the Buddha, you can dial in each of these eight factors closer and closer, and you'll be able to see that the condition of the mind is gradually improving. This Eightfold Path is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. It's organized into three sections, which is wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. And when you learn this through the words of the Buddha, it's like eight individual dials that you dial into your life closer and closer. And not only do you eliminate discontentedness, but you experience focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memory. You'll notice your personal and professional relationships are blossoming because you're not causing harm through your intentions, your speech, your actions, and your livelihood. You'll notice that you're not even in a bad mood anymore by the time you eliminate these pollutions of the mind. These eight factors on the Eightfold Path are almost like eight dials. If you have a speaker system and you were dialing these eight dials in closer and closer, trying to get a better and better quality of sound out of the speakers, that's what you're doing with this Eightfold Path is you're dialing it into your life closer and closer so you can get a better quality mind where your mind can function more optimally. So this is the Four Noble Truths in how the Eightfold Path is this core central teaching. And right view is the very first step of this. And that's what I just shared with you. What right view is, is having the right view that it's your mind that's causing your discontentedness. What wrong view is, is would be to blame other people. If you continue to blame other people, this would be wrong view where you're not understanding the true cause. So everything else that you're learning is built on top of this right view. So I'm going to pause here for a moment before I move into talking about mental health to see if you guys have any questions on the Four Noble Truths before I go farther. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'm going to now start sharing with you some details to help you understand the mental health challenges that an individual can experience. 
Well, in order to help you understand this, I needed to first help you understand what the problem is in the mind, which is the discontentedness. And then the cause of that is craving, desire, attachment in the mind. And then the solution is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And the way to do that is through the Eightfold Path. Well, now let's talk about the brain and the mind. The brain and the mind are two different things. They're not the same thing. The brain is the physical organ in the body that is controlling the body. The mind is not physical. It, it's not tangible. It can't be physically touched. These two things are connected to each other and they influence each other, but they're not the same things. The brain is one thing and the mind is something completely different. The brain is the physical organ. The mind is this non-physical, non-tangible thing. So the Thai people here in Thailand, when they talk about the mind, they will tend to touch their heart because they think about the mind being inside the heart. Or in the West, we tend to point to the head when we talk about the mind. Well, in India, they talk about the mind being external, outside the body. In reality, the mind is non-physical, so it doesn't reside any one particular place. So this mind is non-physical. It's not tangible. You can't touch it. You can't see it. It's non-physical. So the brain, you can see the brain. You can touch the brain, but you can't touch the mind. These are two different things. This is an important understanding to understand as we get started to talk about mental health. People experience symptoms throughout the world of sadness, stress, anxiety, and all kinds of other feelings. Pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. And individuals, when they're experiencing various anguish and suffering and difficulties related to these various feelings, they might seek out chemicals to change the brain chemistry because they're not understanding that the real problem with these discontent feelings is in the mind. It's not in the brain. The brain chemistry is affected by the mind and the mind is affected by the brain chemistry, but you can't eliminate craving, desire, attachment from the mind through tweaking brain chemistry. So if an individual is just using brain chemistry in order to introduce pharmaceuticals and things like this into the brain, then it's just covering up the pollutions that are in the mind and that are really causing these discontent feelings to arise. So you can't solve the sadness and the anger and the frustration and all these other discontent feelings through tweaking brain chemistry. Now, there are situations where an individual can get into what's called psychosis, where the mind is kind of unraveling on itself. And as it is, you need some pharmaceutical medications and some chemicals to lift the mind up to some stability and some steadiness so that then you can learn something like the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path and meditation training and things like that. When your mind is in psychosis, if you've ever experienced that, there's no amount of meditation or the Eightfold Path or the Four Noble Truths that's going to fix that. But once the mind gets to that stability, now you can start bringing on board the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and other things like that. Or if you grew up in a culture like here in Thailand, your mind is less likely to get into something like a psychosis because you've been training your mind throughout your life. So what the mind needs to do rather than or what the individual needs to do in order to resolve the sadness and the guilt and the shame and the fear and the stress and anxiety and other feelings is not necessarily introduce chemicals to the brain, but they need to train the mind to let go. They need to eliminate the cravings, desires, attachments. By training the mind, you can eliminate all these conditional feelings. 
there's certain symptoms that are labeled as mental illness. So let me give you some examples. Say you've had childhood trauma. This is what we call a, an experience that's happened in our childhood that the mind is holding on to right now today. So what the mind is doing in the present moment, say someone's 30, 40, 50 years old, thinking back to what they experienced as a child, the mind is clinging to this experience. And now in the present moment, they're forming conditioned feelings based on the condition of having been physically abused, mentally abused, sexually abused, or something like this. The mind is basing its inner feelings on something that occurred in the past. So in the present moment, the mind is identifying with this experience as maybe being who you are as a person, or you're feeling that you're going to be sad today based on something that happened to you however many years ago. This is the mind experiencing those painful feelings because it's holding on to an experience from the past and now reliving that experience. The mind is clinging to this experience and now it's forming its inner feelings based on some condition. Just like the mind experiences happiness if it's sunny and then it experiences sadness if it's raining, the mind is saying, okay, if I didn't experience abuse when I was a child, I will be happy. But the fact that I experienced abuse, I will now be sad because I wanted things to be different and they weren't that way, right? So this is the mind forming conditioned feelings. And you can get liberated from this. You can eliminate this from the mind. You'll still have memories that these things occurred in your past, but you will no longer form inner feelings based on those things. And then there's something called bipolar disorder. This is what some people are diagnosed with and told that they're mentally ill or that they have a brain defect or something like this, where the mind goes into this excited state that we refer to as mania. And then an individual, when they're in that mania, they might go shopping, they might do gambling, they might drink alcohol or liquor, they might have lots of sex. There's all these cravings that are taking the mind into these pleasant feelings. But then at some point, the mind's going to crash and go into the sadness or those painful feelings. So these are the symptoms that are labeled as mental illness. But the individual and the Western medical community is not understanding what's truly causing these feelings to occur. So oftentimes an individual is labeled as being mentally ill and that the brain is defective. So now the mind is conditioned to believe that there's a chemical imbalance in the brain and that the source of the problem is the brain chemistry. And now they're taught that the solution is to introduce pharmaceutical treatments and that the source of this problem is causing their intentions, their speech, and their actions to be emanating from this off balance of the brain chemistry. And now they're going to have difficulties in their intention, speech, and actions for the rest of their life. Essentially, an individual is being taught to blame what they're experiencing on this brain chemistry this sadness, this frustration, this agitation, the hostility, the animosity, that this is all because of my brain chemistry. Well, if an individual has that thought or that belief, then this is wrong view because the mind isn't understanding right view, which is it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing these discontent feelings. So the cause of these discontent feelings and the harmful intention, speech, and actions is actually the untrained mind. It's not that the brain chemistry is off. If the mind is polluted, 
it can throw the brain chemistry off. So this is why when scientists and researchers and doctors look at the brain chemistry, they'll see the brain chemistry is off because mind that is polluted and the more heavily polluted that it is, it'll throw off the brain chemistry. But by tweaking the brain chemistry, you're not gonna eliminate the pollutions of the mind that the Buddha discovered like craving, desire, attachment. So there's this lack of wisdom, moral conduct and mental discipline that is in the mind. And this is understanding right view, that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing these discontent feelings. So now looking at the modern mental health practices, that if we think that the brain is defective, then if the scientists and the researchers have truly discovered a defect in the brain and that human population has a brain defect, then we would expect to see that this same defect affects all populations across the world. So what we see in one country, we would see in another country because the brain being defective, it couldn't have happened just in the last couple of decades. In order for humanity's brain to become defective, it would have taken many generations for this to occur. And we've been so intermixed at this point that we would see the same things going on in one country, in one population that we see in another population. Because if humanity's brain is defective, then we would see that across the board, across all populations. But that's not what we see. If the modern mental health practices are helping, then what we would see is the number of cases and the number of people that are being labeled as mentally ill, we would see that declining as time would go on. So if researchers and scientists have found the actual problem that, aha, we've got a defective brain in humanity. Yes, Eureka, we found the problem. So now let's introduce the solution, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, let's introduce this. And now when we introduce this, if that's the true problem, we would see that people will become more and more mentally stable, mentally fit, and we would see the number of cases of the mental health challenges going down and down and down and down because we found the problem and we found the solution. But this isn't what we see. We actually see just the opposite, that more and more and more and more and more people are being diagnosed with mental illness. We see a proliferation of people who are considering themselves mentally ill. There's people who prefer that they wear sweatpants and they like that fabric on their body and they don't like to have jeans and they don't like the texture of jeans on their body. This is considered to be a mental illness nowadays because they prefer sweatpants over jeans. So there's this proliferation of mental health illnesses that are being labeled and people are being labeled as being mentally ill. So if we've found the problem in society and we found the solution, we would see the cases declining, but that's not what we see. If the modern mental health practices are actually helping and solving a real problem, where we see these mental health practices being used the most, those places would have the most mentally stable and mentally fit populations in the world. So there's places like the USA, like the UK, like Australia and other Western countries that are using the modern mental health practices quite a bit. And if these were actually helping and these were actually solving the problem, then we would see that this population of people would be the most mentally stable and mentally fit population of people in the world anywhere. And that's what you need to look at. And you need to ask yourself, is that's what you see? Do you see people 
that are in the USA, in the UK, in Australia, and all these other Western countries, are these the most mentally fit people that you see in the world? Are there other places in the world that the people are peaceful, that they're calm, that they're joyful? If you haven't been to a place like Thailand or here in Asia, you're going to see a lot of that because the teachings of the Buddha are here in Asia and people's pollutions of mind are being eradicated as they're growing up. So you see a lot of peacefulness in a place like here in Thailand. So if these mental health practices were truly helping and we were getting to a point where we've actually solved the problem and we've got the solution, we would see this stability across these populations where they're using those the most. You wouldn't see people that are fighting, that are argumentative, that are murdering, that are raping. You wouldn't see mass shootings occurring. So if you're seeing these kinds of things like racism and all these hostility and aggression in the population of people, this is indicative of a population of people whose mental health is not very stable because they can't live together harmoniously. They're at each other's throats constantly. So you can look at the places that are using these mental health practices and it's promoting wrong view and people are going around thinking that their brain chemistry is off and that they're defective in the brain and now blaming that these intention, speech and actions are being blamed on that. So Western cultures don't understand the practices of the three universal truth or the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path. They don't understand and they're not practicing these things, which will eradicate the pollutions and bring about a peacefulness and harmonious way of living together. So because the Western medicine is misunderstanding what the true problem is and the solution that's being provided isn't a true solution to fix the sadness, the anger, the frustration, the hostility, the aggression, this problem is just becoming worse and worse and worse and worse. So you can learn the teachings of the Buddha and create a well-trained mind to create stability in the mind. You can gradually learn the teachings, gaining more and more stability and steadiness in the mind to the point where if you're on medications now, once you notice that stability in the mind, you can gradually decrease your medications. It might take six months, a year, year and a half, two years. Each person's a little bit different. But as you bring in more and more learning, you cultivate the mind, the mind gains more wisdom, you train with meditation and these other techniques, you'll start noticing more stability and stableness in the mind. And as your mind is feeling uplifted, and stable and steady, you'll notice that you'll be able to decrease and decline and ultimately eliminate your medications because you can eliminate this lifetime of being relegated to medications and expensive therapies because this can really drain on you to go out there in the world and work and work and work and work and work in order to make all of this money to be able to support the medications, the therapy. This can be really expensive. You can rid yourself of this lifetime of expense and side effects through training the mind and liberating the mind, getting to this enlightened mental state where you can experience freedom from medications. Now, I would never tell somebody when is the right time to eliminate their medications. That's for each individual person to choose for themselves. But you can tell this for yourself. As you are training your mind, you're starting to notice more and more stability, you'll be able to decide for yourself when would be the appropriate time to decline your medication. You might even do this in connection with your family and your doctors because there's some psychiatrists and therapists who find out about the Buddhist teachings through their patients. 
there's sometimes students who are learning with me who are a patient of a psychiatrist or a therapist, and maybe three months, six months, a year into learning with me, their psychiatrist or their therapist has to question them is like, why is your mind becoming so stable? We're noticing so much improvement to the stability of your mind. And this person can speak up and say like, oh, I'm studying the teachings of the Buddha and I've been training my mind with these teachings. And then the psychiatrist and the therapist become intrigued and they're interested to know more because they don't understand how the teachings of the Buddha can actually help an individual. Because in a lot of places, people are practicing the teachings of the Buddha as rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. They think that it's a religion. But if you understand the true teachings of the Buddha, that's not what the Buddha actually taught. And if you can get to the core teachings of the Buddha, you'll be able to learn and practice through his own words and be able to gain this stability in the mind by training the mind. And then you'll know when is the right time to actually decrease your medication if you would like to do that as you see gradual improvement to the condition of the mind. There are certain mental health illnesses that are being labeled as mental illness that you can look at and you can see are directly related to the teachings of the Buddha. I've got them in this chapter 22, the full entire table, and I've got that here in the visual aids that I'm using as well. Things like ADHD, ADD, anorexia, bulimia, anxiety or panic disorders, bipolar disorder, depression, hoarding, insomnia, OCD, personality disorders, various phobias, PTSD, schizophrenia, substance abuse, suicidal thoughts, all these things can be traced to exact causes based on the teachings of the Buddha, and the Buddha is providing the solution to be able to eliminate these. So let's just take a couple of these. Let's take OCD, for example. OCD is where an individual is having obsessive compulsive disorder. This is what it's labeled as. The anguish and the suffering that this individual is experiencing is real, but the cause is not actually true. It's not brain chemistry that is causing this. It's the mind craving perfection. A person with obsessive compulsive disorder might go through their house putting everything in exactly the same spot. And if anything is off, they can become angry or frustrated and they can be thrown off and they try to keep everything in their house looking exactly the same, even to the point of like combing the fringe on their carpets and making sure the fringe on the carpet is all in a certain way. Well, this is just the mind craving perfection. And if they can train their mind to eliminate that craving, they can eliminate the symptoms of OCD. Or let's back up and look at something like ADHD or ADD. This is where the mind is having difficulties focusing and having concentration. This is just from an untrained mind. The mind is craving mental stimulation. It's lacking right concentration. The mind has never been trained to have focus and clarity and concentration. And this is usually discovered as a child is going to school, that maybe at home, they've been watching TV, playing video games, listening to music, watching YouTube videos. Maybe their mind is like bouncing around from thing to 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 thing. And now when they go to school and their teacher is teaching them a lesson and they need to be focused on what the teacher is teaching them, their mind can't do that because at home, their mind's been bouncing around to so many different things that it's not possible for them to sit there and just focus in class. So now there's medication that is introduced to subdue the mind, but this doesn't actually solve the problem because it's the craving for mental stimulation 
inside the mind that is causing that problem is not the brain chemistry. The brain chemistry could be off because of the pollution in the mind, but the brain chemistry and tweaking that isn't going to solve the concentration. It's training the mind to eliminate its cravings, desires, attachments. When you're focused on the breath and meditation, you're honing the mind to be able to stay focused and concentrated. And like right now, when you're listening to me, you're having to train the mind to do just one thing at a time. Whereas if the mind moves and wanders, and maybe you're thinking about lunch or you're thinking about dinner, or for those of you guys in America, maybe you're thinking about the Super Bowl that's going to be played tonight if you're into football. Well, if you can cut that off and let it go and bring the mind back to the conversation, more and more you can train the mind to be focused and concentrated rather than jumping around from thing to thing to thing to thing. Or let's take something like hoarding. An individual who does hoarding, they might have their house loaded up with a bunch of stuff that they went out and bought at a store. And what this is, is this is the individual when they first started, they will go out and buy one or two or three items and they would get these pleasant feelings when they go shopping and they purchase these new things. And now they do that several times and they're stocking up this new things in the house and they don't even really use these things. They're just enjoying the pleasant feelings of going shopping and acquiring a new thing. And now one, two or three things doesn't satisfy their craving anymore. They need to buy six or seven or eight or nine or 10 or 20 things. And they just keep hoarding and hoarding and hoarding and collecting these things up in their house. This is referred to as hoarding. And an individual might think that their brain is defective. But that's not what it is. It's just that the mind is having craving. It's chasing those pleasant feelings. And when it goes shopping, it acquires these new material possessions. It experiences those conditioned pleasant feelings. But those feelings arise, they change, and they fade away. And the mind ultimately ends up in the painful feelings again. And when the person is experiencing the painful feelings, the only thing that the untrained mind knows how to do to get back to something that's comfortable is to crave some more. So it'll just crave some more. It'll just go shopping again. And this is where you can see some people will have many different addictions. It can be shopping. It can be gambling. It can be sex. It can be drugs or alcohol. There can be any number of addictions that an individual might have. And this is where ultimately someone might be experiencing such painful feelings that they actually become suicidal. They really want to end their life, but they're not actually truly interested in dying. They're interested in eliminating those painful feelings, but they don't know how. So the only way that they know to end those painful feelings is they think they only have one life. And if they kill themselves, then they're going to solve their problem. But they don't understand that there's this cycle of rebirth, that when they kill themselves, they're going to be reborn back into the world again. And they may be reborn into a lower realm, which makes the problems even worse. So if somebody thinks they only have one life, now when they kill themselves, they think they're solving the problem, but they're actually making it worse. They really are just interested in getting rid of those painful feelings. They're not truly interested in dying, typically. They're just interested in getting rid of those painful feelings. But the mind doesn't know how because it lacks wisdom. So it's the teachings of the Buddha that are providing you the wisdom the tools and the techniques to eliminate those painful feelings so that you can eliminate the suicidal thoughts and all these other symptoms associated with mental illness that are now today being described as a defective brain, but really what it is, is an untrained mind. The mind is just untrained. It's lacking wisdom. It doesn't understand the tools and techniques of how to cultivate the mind, how to uproot these pollutions and get to a point where the mind's peaceful and joyful.
But if you study the teachings of the Buddha and you don't believe them and you investigate them, examine them and reflect on them to independently verify them and then you start practicing them, you can see the improvement to the condition of the mind. So this is everything that I have to share with you guys on this topic. I'm going to open up to any and all questions that you guys would like to ask about this content. So feel free to put that into Facebook, YouTube or Zoom or in Zoom you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. Okay, it looks like Yi Hang, you have a question? Go ahead, ma'am. Yeah, I wonder <laughs> if you could talk about more about eating disorder, because I've had eating disorder for many, many years. And before I got to know teachings of the Buddha, I already kind of had that feeling. I feel like I have to let go of the false image of the beauty and identification of myself and try to slowly let myself let it go. And I feel like it turns a bit like stable in my mind uh, in terms of the relation with the food. But after I got to know the teaching with the Buddha, I am interested in going to move to a plant-based diet. And I think I experience that I don't really have craving for meat. I don't really feel that. But the problem encounters when I kind of go out with people and I'm not sure if I should say that I am vegetarian or I just keep myself silent and I try different ways to introduce it. Sometimes I feel like when I say I don't eat meat and after that meeting, I don't know, somehow it's very different. But sometimes I feel like if people pay a lot of attention to that speech, I feel a little bit shaken up after I get back home because in the moment I feel like I still tried to always cut off the shaken up feeling. And then when I got home, I feel like it's a bit uncomfortable when I think about this whole made up. And then that was the moment that sometimes I experience the craving for food again. I think I want some sort of comfort. So do you have any advice to people who might had difficulties with the relation with the food to move to like plant-based diet? Sure. So this is where you can really dissect and see exactly where the problem is coming from. And yours sounds like it's maybe two different pollutions in the mind. If there's personal existence view in the mind, which pretty much every unenlightened mind has to a certain degree, particularly if they're off the path to enlightenment, then there's going to be that false image of beauty and there's going to be associating this body with who you are and now wanting this body to appear and look a certain way. So working to eliminate personal existence view will really help you there. But then the other side of what you were talking about is the central desire of wanting the taste or the flavor of meat or some other food. That's the central desire part of what can be an eating disorder. So depending on what is really the predominant thing that you're struggling with in terms of whether it's personal existence view or central desire, there would be different things that I would teach you in order to help you eradicate this. Personal existence view is something that you really need to spend a lot of time to think about and talk about and discuss. And this is why I devoted a chapter to this in the first book. 
volume one, chapter 16, will help you to understand what personal existence view is. And there's various proactive things that you can be doing to knock that down and eliminate that. And as you learn that, both in the book and in the classes, as you have questions, you can let me know because it takes a good hour and a half to explain that. And then central desire, this one can be eradicated through training the mind to eliminate its cravings, desires, attachments. All this is leading to the same direction with the Eightfold Path helping you to do this. But one of the things that you can do with food is you can train the mind that the only purpose of food is to nourish the body and to sustain life. Because what we tend to want to do when we have central desire in the mind is we want to please the tongue in order to please the mind. And this is why we'll be averse to certain foods and then we will crave other foods. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you're gonna to need to be able to eat any and all food, except for like if it was something you were allergic to and it would have an allergic reaction or say that it's like just so extremely hot that it would cause some kind of difficulties in terms of like breathing or anything like this. But like if there's a particular fruit like, I don't know if you like durian. This is a common one in Asia where people either really, really enjoy durian or they really are averse to it. So this is a good example that you would like to get to the point where you can eat something like durian or some other fruits or vegetable or other food like this. You would like to get to the point where you're not craving one thing and you're averse to something else or you're repulsed by something else. That you can just eat something that you can view it as something to sustain the body. So one of the practices that I did for this is I had a meal plan. At the time I was living in America, so for about two or three years, I just signed up for this meal plan. I didn't have any input into the menu. They just delivered food to me about twice a week. They would deliver two or three meals per delivery, and I would just eat whatever they gave me. And I didn't choose the food, I just ate it. And I did this for a good two years or three years. And then at other times, because I was living with my wife and she was cooking, you know, most of the food, I would just let her choose what I would eat. I wouldn't even choose any food. Just whatever was on the plate, that's what I would eat. And when I would go out to restaurants, I would ask the food server. I would say, what do you recommend for someone to order here? And then whatever they would recommend, I would say, great, I'll have that. I wouldn't even look to see what it was on the menu. I wouldn't try to evaluate whether I like it or I don't like it. I would just say, okay, I'll take that order me one of those. So I would take my own mind out of the scenario of choosing food. So this is one of the ways you can train your mind to eliminate sensual desire through the tongue is don't allow your mind to choose what foods you're eating. And this is mimicking what you experience if you were ordained. If you were ordained and you put on robes and you lived at a monastery, you would walk down the street and you would just hold a bowl and whatever food ended up in your bowl, that's what you would eat. So what I just described is accomplishing the same thing, but doing it from a household life. And this is how you can accomplish eliminating the central desire aspect of any particular eating disorder. Sorry, I just have a follow-up question. Mm -hmm. Can I? Uh, yeah, because after what I've heard of your saying, I feel like compared with these two things, it's more of the personal, the first Im image, like personal existence versus the sensual desire, maybe the personal existence view is more 
just for taking the example that you said about Dury, I was actually that example. I was very neutral about durian. I can't eat it if someone offers me, but if we, I don't have durian, I never really crave it as well. And for meat as well, I don't feel like missing it if I don't eat. But I think the problem really encounters when I go out with people. I don't know if you, I mean, people see you, people won't know. But I don't know. I feel like I don't really like to tell all the people that I don't eat meat before the meal. And then I feel like, I don't know. It's like people will talk about it and people, sometimes people will say something about it. And so I just don't say anything. But then when people ask me, uh, like, what's your preference? I don't even know if I should say it or just be mm -hmm. silent about it. But I didn't really had have a good feeling after that meal when I say I don't eat meat and then people bitch about. I think that was the my confusion part at that time. Sure. So there's when you're sharing information with other people, you should only share on a need to know basis, whether it's about food or anything else in your life, that you shouldn't feel like you need to go out and tell everybody that you're choosing to eat vegetarian or eating vegan. But in a situation where you need to share with somebody, like maybe you're coming over to their house and they've invited you over and you would like to be sure that there's food for you to eat there, you might let them know at that point. And I had a situation like that not too long ago where we were invited to a birthday party for my son and they invited the parents too. And I said, hey, I see you guys are having food. I eat vegan and I'm just curious is there going to be vegan food there or should I bring food with me so that then there's food at the party? And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. We'll take care of it. We'll have vegan food here. No problem. I was like, all right, sweet. Right. So I don't share like I don't eat meat because this oftentimes people don't like that word don't. Right. And they feel like they eat meat. You don't eat meat. And now they're going to try to advocate and force you because they have a craving for everybody to do the same thing as them. This is their craving. This is their ego wanting everybody to do the same thing as them. So if somebody's not eating meat, then they feel like they're doing something wrong. So the way that they think to solve the problem is to convince you to eat meat, where rather what I would suggest you do is don't share information with people if they don't need to know. That's the first thing. But then if you do need to share it, share it in a way where instead of saying I don't eat meat, you can say I prefer to eat plant-based food. That's wording it as a positive. And then in situations where like you're invited to a party or something, you can use what I use, which is is there going to be plant-based food there or should I bring food myself? And then this shows them that you're not expecting them to have food, but you're willing to bring your own food. And this is the best way that I found to do this with people. Yeah, that was very sweet. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, looks like Marcy has a question. Go ahead, ma'am. Thank you, teacher David. So the food thing is something that that central desire of the tongue, so with the craving and stuff. And I was kind of trying to contemplate a plan for this being to kind of eradicate that type of desire for food and a certain taste of for food. And I was thinking that maybe, and, and maybe you could help me to see if this is the right mindset, like once a week, cook one big meal, like we'll just say like pasta and red sauce and eat that for the week, no matter if, if the mind or the taste saying is getting tired of it, to continue to eat it for the week. 
and then the next week do something different. So it's like the same meal, same type of meal for breakfast, same type of meal for lunch, same type of meal for dinner, all through the week. Is that a a good way to try to train the mind to just be accepting of whatever food is there is there and not be so craving of having a particular taste? It could train the mind to not be craving a particular taste if you're mixing it up like each week doing something different. But you need to look at your nutritional needs and be sure that whatever you're doing for those five days, that it can meet your nutritional needs because you'd like to maintain your vitality and your energy levels. So just take a look at that. So that yeah, would- I was, what I was finding is that because eat a plant-based diet and what I was finding is I was finding the mind was becoming very attached into organizing my meals. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, attached to, you know, making the meal. And then what was happening is that I was creating these meals, these plant-based meals. And then after ingesting them, I was getting either very, very pleasant feelings about feeling like, oh, this was just an exceptionally wonderful meal that I cooked. I can't believe I did it like this. This is so wonderful. Or I was getting very like, oh, this was horrible, Marcy. How could you Mm -hmm. have, you know, this was just, I was getting those. So I was noticing these feelings that I was getting afterwards. So I was getting the feelings of the preparation And then I was getting these feelings of the aftermath after ingesting. And I'm trying to find a way where I'm not creating situations where these conditioned feelings arise. Does that Mm. make sense? Yeah. Did you talk about, did you say you would make a particular pot of something and then you would freeze it and then throughout the week you're going to eat it? Is that what you were saying? Okay. Yeah. So you could do that. Just be sure it's meeting your nutritional needs. The other thing you could do is make more than one thing too, right? And like put it into some kind of containers. And if you're freezing, say you're freezing two, three, four, five different types of meals. And maybe now you've got like 10, 20, however many meals in the freezer. And then you just grab one. You don't look to see what it is. You don't allow the mind to pick. You just grab one. Just like I teach with the clothing for personal existence view, you could just grab one. That way it could still potentially have more of a variety to meet your nutritional needs. Thank you, Teacher David. Thank Mm -hmm. you. You're welcome. Okay. I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So what I'm going to do is just in class by thanking all of you guys for joining. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your dedication to learning and practicing these teachings. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 23 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. Chapter 23 is titled Symbolism of the Teachings, Reminders Through Imagery. This is where you're going to learn various symbols that you'll see in various artwork, various temples, various places that you go around the Buddhist world. And I'm going to help you to connect the symbols that were being used to the teachings of the Buddha so that you can start gleaning benefit from these symbols that you see throughout the Buddhist world. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to be doing a guided breathing mindfulness meditation session and opening up to any and all questions that you guys have. We're going to be restarting the group learning program on March 17th, which is a Sunday. It's the middle of March. And we're going to be starting from the very beginning and going through the whole program again for a seven-month period. So if you have joined us here at the end or you would like to restart the program from the beginning, that's when we're going to be restarting it. Or if you have 
have friends or family that are interested in starting from the very beginning of the program, that's a great time to do that. And sometimes students like to kind of start joining towards the end to kind of get into the routine of attending classes and getting all the technology things taken care of where they can come into Zoom or into Facebook or YouTube and all those kinds of things. And you can offer this to anybody who might be interested in learning the teachings of the Buddha and training their mind and evolving beyond all these mental challenges and struggles. Because what I'm sharing with you here is that the modern mental health discipline and technology it's there for a reason. It can be really helpful in acute situations where an individual has psychosis. We have this great technology to introduce some chemicals and lift the mind back up. But once the mind gets lifted and it's back to some level of stability, that's the time to bring in the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the meditation training and things like that. So these things can live and coexist together. But if somebody's only tweaking brain chemistry and thinking this is going to alleviate all their symptoms, that's not going to actually be a full solution for them. So you can get to a point where you increase the stability of the mind with the teachings of the Buddha, and now you can decrease the medications and ultimately eliminate it in most cases. So this is something that can be shared with anybody and everybody if they would like to learn and practice the teachings and all the resources available for them at no cost. So again, thank you for joining for our class today, and perhaps I'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.